Thank you for listening to a Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Signed this week to start this book and hear from the Lord out of the Old Testament yet again. We try to bounce back and forth from the Old Testament to the New, and as we try to rightly divide the Word of God, we want to make sure that we're all over the place. We want to give you words of God from the Old Testament to the New, and then the different categories in the Old Testament. You have the historical works, then you have the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and you have the major prophets and the minor prophets, and of course the first five books of the Bible are the Torah, the Law of God, and so we have these big categories in the Old Testament of these books, and we want to give you... Uh, the New Testament and the Old, as we're preaching through God's Word, is, we know, all Scripture is profitable. All of it. Every bit of it is profitable for teaching and for group review, for training in righteousness. And so we get to dive into this historical work, the book of Nehemiah. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord again. The sermon title this morning is The Prayer of Nehemiah. So let's follow in the footsteps of that man and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. Help us to... Hear and respond to you as your words are spoken and preached. And then, Lord, help us to be active. Help us to not be passive in our response to your word. As we hear about the grief of Nehemiah, about the city of God, about the walls being broken down, about the gates being burned, about the people being in despair. God, I pray that we would mourn along with him, but I pray that you would direct our mourning. As we think about what's going on in our world and in the church right now of Jesus Christ across the globe, there are things to mourn about. But God, give us direction as we hear from Nehemiah about what he did. Help us to model that. Help us to take our requests to you and not just stay in a place of warning, but give us give us uh, energy to do what you've called us to do. We want to be people of action. We want to be people of good works. And so lead us in that. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, the thing that we need to understand about the book of Nehemiah is that it is part 2 of a collection of books, and it's Ezra and Nehemiah that go together. So two books that are really one book, it's part one and part two of the same story. And so we're in part two of the story, so we really need to know a little bit about what happened with part one in Ezra. They tell about the books together, the return of the people of God after the exile in Babylon. And so when God's people were taken away from Israel, when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, God's people were brought into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And at some point after King Nebuchadnezzar died, the city fell, and the Persians came in, and they took over Babylon. So now the Persians are in charge, and there was a capital city, no longer in Babylon, but in Susa. If you remember when we went through the book of Ezra, or Esther, the book of Esther took place in the city of Susa, the capital city of Susa. And so Ezra then tells the story of the edict of King Cyrus, the edict of King Cyrus, the Persian king, who defeated the Babylonians, and then he sent Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And so Ezra tells of two ways of the people of God coming out of exile from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So these two ways were led by a man named Zerubbabel and then, and then Ezra in chapters 6 and 7. And the idea was that the city was going to go and be rebuilt and that the temple would be rebuilt. And so these two big waves of people, it was through God's sovereign hand who raised up King Cyrus in uh in the Persian capital to be and to send the people of God back with resources, with the authority of the very king to rebuild the city. And so it had been about 70 years. 
just according to God's timing. He had told the people of God, they're going to go into Babylon for 70 years, and then I'm going to bring you up out of that city and bring you back. And sure enough, just in time, just as God said he would, he began to bring his people back to the city. So Zerubbabel leads the first wave, Ezra leads the second wave, and then Nehemiah is going to lead, lead the third wave. And that's what the whole book of Nehemiah is about, about the people coming back to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. Now, the ruins had already started to be rebuilt in the book of Ezra because the temple was rebuilt in chapter 6 and 7. You see that the temple was rebuilt. It was not rebuilt to its former glory. In fact, there were some really old people, really old people that were with the people of God that came back who actually remembered in their earliest ages, they remembered the old temple and they saw the new temple and they saw that the new temple did not match the glory of the old and it actually brought them to tears actually brought them to tears, that it was not as glorious as before. But in fact, the temple was rebuilt. It's the very temple that would be destroyed in 70 AD. And if you remember the famous verse in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We're seeing that hope and future unfold in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a really cool story. So if you get to read Ezra, you can kind of get that background story. But we see that God did have plans for his people. And it was plans to prosper them and not to harm them. He was not going to forget them in exile. God had plans with his people. He would send them back out. It was not the first time that the people of God had been in exile. Remember, they had been in Egypt and God redeemed them out of Egypt. And their story Kind of the bookends of their story is times in Egypt and times in Babylon, and it was God bringing them out of those seasons of exile. So the first time, Abraham goes in, or Jacob goes in with his 12 sons, and that, that ragtag small family ended up becoming a nation of millions. And the nation came out, and they plundered the Egyptians, and they came out with wealth, prosperity, power, and they go, and they end up seeing the enemies, Egyptians, fall at the bottom of the sea. You, you don't really want to be in opposition to God. You end up at the bottom of the sea. Um, and so the people of God then came out of this nation. This time, as they're coming out of exile, they don't come out as a nation. They, they come out as a, a, a nation of power and wealth. They come out as a smaller nation of people who did not plunder the Babylonians, but they did come out with the favor of God. And so they come back to this city, and they're wanting to rebuild this city and see God's people again in this place of glory. They want the presence of God to return. They want God to continue his purposes. And so that's where we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, upon hearing what's happening in Jerusalem, even though the city had started to be rebuilt, he would weep and wail. He would mourn. He would cry out to God because of the lost glory. They wanted to rebuild these ruins. And they did. Now, we're going to have to do some interpretive work a little bit later, but I'll just go ahead and start that to say that we're here in America, and we have a rich heritage of Christianity. We have to keep in mind that Christianity in America is very unique around the world. This, this, the founding of this nation was so intertwined with the words of God. But we have to know that America itself is not Israel. And we think about these things, it, it's going to be easy for us to think, oh, Israel, America. We have to be careful. We, we first recognize that we are the people of God. Okay, we are the people of God. It's not America as a whole is the people of God. No, 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 no. The people of God are a global people. And so there are going to be some dots that we're going to connect with America. But primarily we're going to talk about the family of God. And we want to see the family of God, the church of Christ in this country, built back up family by family as we regain, not just forward glory, we regain glory and we take ground for the kingdom of God. So in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, we find out that it happened. 
I love that's how it says it. It happened. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened. It happened. In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. It happened. Uh, Nehemiah is the orator of the book, most likely penned some of it and had other people help pen the rest of it. These are his words. There's a historical timestamp on this book. So just to get some more of the background of this book, there's a historical timestamp. We find out what month in the Jewish calendar it was. And we know that it was sometime in mid-November to mid-December, 446 B.C., it was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, who reigned in Persia from 464 to 423 B.C. Um, this book takes place 13 years after Ezra was sent back on that second wave. He was sent back on that second wave of the people leaving Babylon and going back to Israel, or Jerusalem. And so this is seven years from that, and that happened in, in, in Ezra chapter 7. So the story is that Hanani... Nehemiah's brother and some other men came from Judah, and they laid out for him what's going on in Jerusalem. And the remnant there was in great distress. The walls were torn down, and the gates were burned. Now, it's interesting to me that they did not mention, maybe Nehemiah already knew, maybe it was just kind of a side note or a footnote in the story. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they didn't mention that the city had started to be rebuilt. They didn't mention that the temple was rebuilt. All that was mentioned is that the walls were torn down and that the gates were burned. And this information really saddened Nehemiah. Mighty Jerusalem had fallen and it had fallen hard. He knew about some of it, but the city was still, even with some parts rebuilt, it was still a shell of its former glory. And we find out what his response was. He gets the information and we find out his response. We see it in verse 4. Look at it. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah hears about the fatherland. He hears about the city of God. And the news so saddens him that he has to sit down. He can't stand. His knees began to shake. He just felt his body. He was feeling it in his body. He had to sit down. The news was so bad. And he started to weep, and he mourned for days. For days, he wept and mourned. This is a kind of grief that's really, really deep. It's the kind of grief that usually is preserved for the most painful seasons of life when a loved one is lost or something just terrible happens and you just can't shake it. It's just you just grieve for days and days and days. It's like you can't eat, you can't do anything but just be in this present grief. And, and this is the kind of grief that Nehemiah felt. It affected him so much that it affected his body. Days went on. And the weeping went on, the mourning went on, and then he fasted and prayed about it before the God of heaven. And so you can see that Nehemiah is heartbroken about the city of God, the place of God's presence. And, and he does something about it. He begins to respond to stay in this grief. He directs this grief in a particular area, or a particular way. He begins to fast and he begins to pray. 
And we have to do some clearing of the interpretation debris because we connect, connect these dots, like I said before. When you're thinking about the Old Testament, when you're thinking about Israel, you have, as we found out in Romans, in the book of Romans, you had an Israel within the Israel. You had people that actually had faith. There were people that were born sons of Abraham that did not, they were not sons of God. They were, they were God's people, but they were not sons of God. There were people within Jerusalem and within that city that did not have faith and that were not actually born again. They were not saved. They were not, as Romans chapter 9 says, they were not children of Jacob. They were children of um, Esau. Uh, they were not children of the promise. And so we think about this, it's, it's going to be hard. We've got to do some interpretive debris and move it for us to understand what exactly is going on. So Nehemiah, he was concerned with the city of God. So our concern has to be, when we think about the city of God and the people of God, it has to be with the church before it is with America. Although we'll, we'll have our concerns about America. But because our history is so intertwined, there are going to be some implications for both. But if we are to learn from Nehemiah, we have to learn to share his concern for the people of God, the city of God, the place in which God's presence dwelled. And as we think about that, we realize that it's the church that the presence of God dwells with. And if we're going to have some concerns about broken down walls and burned doors or burned gates, we're going to have to have some concerns about the people of God. And we're really going to have to peel back some layers and ask some hard questions about the state of the church. And no matter where we are in the history of the world, there's always places and pockets that the people of God can grow. There's always places and pockets, not just the people of God out there can grow, but the people of God in here can grow. And that this man right here, as we turn our eyes to our own hearts and our own families, there's places in which we need to mourn that we have sinned against God. And we need to know where to bring it. And we know how to walk out of it. We need to know how to walk out of it. And we should grieve. Um, when we look at the church in America, and we want to speak well of brothers and sisters, but we also want to be able to call out what is unwell within the church of America. When we see the church of America, we should match some of the grief that Nehemiah has about the city of Jerusalem. And we should match some of that grief as we look and kind of take a barometer and, and figure out what's the state of church in America. What's the state of the church in the world? How are we doing? And there are some diagnostics that we can ask and get answers for. And we can get insight into how is the church in America? How are we doing? And I think as we look at what's going on, I think that it, <coughs> excuse me, I think that it will cause it will cause some grief. Um, there are some sad sad things that 2020 has revealed in 2021. 2021 is revealing. 2020 exposed. So much about the American pastorate and about the American church, and I want to speak carefully here. Um, but we're in a, we're in a current downgrade, and, and if you don't know what the downgrade is, the downgrade is something that happened in the late 1800s, and it, it was in Great Britain. And Charles Spurgeon was a pastor who stood and, and really ended up standing alone against the downgrade. The downgrade was centered around this German scholarship that was liberal scholarship that was calling into question the authority of the Bible and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon took arrows from everybody because he was calling attention to the problem of this downgrade. And everybody was saying to him, Spurgeon, you're being mean. His own brother turned his back on him. 
But Spurgeon stood. He knew what was going on. He understood the times. And men who understand the times are rarely understood by those who don't. Spurgeon saw what was going on. And history proved him right. Today, there's the same thing right now unfolding in front of us where we're seeing a modern downgrade. We're seeing the Word of God under attack by so-called evangelicals who are being duped into believing foolish things. And we're seeing people who are saying that the blood of Christ isn't enough. The very same things that were under attack are under attack again today. The church, now each and every church, of course, but the church has been abandoning God's Word for the praise of the world. The church has been abandoning God's Word for the praise of the word world. They've abandoned the atonement, acting as if the blood of Christ is not enough to reconcile, as we stated at the beginning of the service today, as if the blood of Christ is not enough to reconcile black and white people, or people of all colors. Acting as if the gospel of Jesus cannot break down, the, or has not broken down, the dividing wall of hostility. The churchmen have been more concerned about public opinion than with obedience to God. And I've seen it amongst my brothers, my brother pastors all across this country who have sold out, who have absolutely sold out because they want to be liked by the world. And I want to be, again, very careful. I want to be honoring. But the people of God have always sought to bring correction when corruption comes. God always raises up people to see this is wrong. God has spoken about this. And friends, we need army of not just pastors. We need army of men and women, boys and girls, who say, I don't care what anybody has to say about this other than God. What does God have to say about this? Whatever the topic is in the world, and they go with what God has to say about it. And come what may, if they're made fun of, if they're ridiculed, if they're made to feel like they're on the out, you really don't understand the times. You're going to look back on this later, and you're going to be on the wrong side of history. As my friend Eric Kahn said, I'd rather be on the wrong side of history if I'm on the right, right side of eternity. I want to be on the right side of eternity. What God has to say, I'm going to go with that no matter what it is. The churchmen have been more concerned with being liked by President Biden or Vice President Kamala Harris than they have to honor the Lord. The American church, I think, is tired of weak men in pulpits. Tired of weak shepherds. Tired of people apologizing to the world for what God has to say. They're tired of it. And I think last year and this year is exposing that there is weak people behind pulpits not saying what God has to say. And congregations all over the country are saying, wait a minute, this is not right. It's laity who are recognizing the abandoning of the gospel of their pastors. And it's happening everywhere. We saw a movement of people called Evangelicals for Biden in this election. We saw a lot of people, even in conservative churches, jump on that bandwagon. Pastors sat by, said nothing, while church members were duped and manipulated into voting for such evil causes. Doing spiritual origami to say, no, it's really okay. You know, but at least he's nicer on Twitter, I guess. And I'm not saying at all that you had to vote for Trump. I'm not saying at all. But what I am saying is that it was sinful and foolish to vote for Biden or Harris. And churchmen all across this land were scared in silence. Uh, the Democrats just rejected a bill put forth by Senator Ben Sass to protect babies born alive after 
abortion attempts. Now, we expect non-believers to act like non-believers. We expect that. Okay? But here's what we, sh we shouldn't ever accept. Or expect. We shouldn't ever expect or accept Christians acting like non-believers. We should call them up to war. We should call them up to war. We should never accept Christians acting like the world. And there is a wickedness that's happening right now in the world that is hard to explain. Um, the fact that anyone would vote or reject protecting a child. There, we don't have adjectives to describe that, that, that kind of wickedness. We really don't. Um, it's, it's not about politics. It's about care for not just the unborn. It's about the care for a child. Um, it's it's mind-blowing. McRae, so many other brothers, so-called brothers and sisters, were celebrating being on the right side of history. They celebrating. Yeah. And here's the thing. When we want to model what Nehemiah is doing, it's not that we mourn that non-believers are acting like non-believers. There's a place for that. There's a place for lament. There's a place for imprecatory psalms, praying down our enemies. But when we see brothers and sisters being duped, when we see brothers and sisters saying things like Lecrae said, it should cause us to weep and to mourn what is happening. Your, your family, the family of God, why are you walking in the way of the world? Why are you embracing such wickedness and such evil? You, it, it's the state of ruins that's in front of us. It's Jerusalem whose city has been destroyed and whose gates have been burned. How is it that the people of God are abandoning the word of God? How is it that the church would have been so weak? It should cause us to mourn. We should mourn when we see Christians celebrating Kamala Harris being voted in as vice president because she's a woman. Friends, that is so foolish. That is so foolish. Ladies, it's foolish. Don't be like Eve and be duped into thinking stupid things. Celebrating evil is never a good thing for any reason. For any reason. We have lost our prophetic edge. This is ruins. There are so few in the public sphere that are at the top levels of any denominational organizations. Sure, you'll find them in lower levels, but at the very top, you have people apologizing for what God has to say. Sorry. This is what God says, though. We don't have the liberty to be ashamed of God's word. When we think about Nehemiah, when he hears about the place in which God's presence dwells and the glory had been lost. And when we look at today, it's such a timely book. We look at today and see where is the people of God standing and just saying, here's what God says. We don't care what you think. We love you enough to tell you the truth. When we see Christians, so-called conservative Christians, who are embarrassed about it, lost our prophetic edge on the altar of being nice. Just be nice. 
as if niceness is the call of Christianity. Friends, we are to be kind. It's the kindness of God that leads us to, to repentance. But we are not to be cowardly. The cowards are the first ones thrown into the lake of fire. Read it in Revelation chapter 20. It's the cowards. A.W. Tozer said this. If Christianity is to receive a rejuvenation, he said this in the late 20th century, like 1967s. Okay? If Christianity is to receive a rejuvenation, it must be by other means that are now being used. If the church in the second half of this century is to recover from the injuries she received in the first half, there must appear a new type of preacher. The proper rule of the synagogue type will never do. Neither will the priestly type man who carries out his duties, takes his pay, asks no questions, nor the smooth-talking pastoral type who knows how to make the Christian religion acceptable to everyone. All these have been tried and found wanting. Here's what he says. Another kind of preacher, another kind of religious leader must arise among us. He must be of the old prophetic type, a man who has seen visions of God and heard a voice from the throne. When he comes and I pray, God, there would be not one, but many. He will stand in flat contradiction to everything our smirking, smooth civilization holds dear. He will contradict, denounce, and protest in the name of God and will earn the hatred and opposition of a large segment of Christianity. Such a man is likely to be lean, rugged, blunt-spoken, and a little bit angry with the world. He will love Christ and the souls of men to the point of willingness to die for the glory of one and the salvation of the other. But he will fear nothing that breathes with mortal breath. And friends, we don't need just pastors like this. We need churchmen and church ladies like this who fear nothing that breathes with mortal breath. The pressure is coming for you to apologize. The mob is coming, not just for pastors, the mob is coming for co-workers and students to come and apologize for what God has to say about sexual ethics. And we have to be prepared now to have the backbone to say, I don't fear anything that breathes with mortal breath. I fear the God of the universe. And I'm not going to apologize for him. He's got my back. And friends, we have our brothers and sisters who bear the name of Christ across this country and across this world. And it's like the walls have been broken. But they're trying to be nice. Trying to be kind. Trying to walk on eggshells. Instead of loving people enough to stand with the Word of God. And we should mourn, mourn what's happening in our country with the church. And there's a place for lament in the Christian life. The Christian life is intended to be a life of joy with seasons of lament. It's not intended to be a life of lament with seasons of joy. We've got to get that right. But there is a time and a place for doing what Nehemiah did. Grief, mourning, crying out to God, God, do something! It looks as if our enemies are winning. Do something. How is the place of glory fallen? But Nehemiah doesn't stay there. He doesn't stay in a place of mourning, and neither should we. We shouldn't stay in a place of negativity. We should be called up into action. We should see what God is doing. 
We should see those across this country that God is raising up to be bold. We should see people in our midst who God's raising up in our church and other churches who are being bold and saying, Thus saith the Lord. Here's what God has to say. You weren't scared about it. We should recognize what God is doing. His Nehemiah's prayer is directed. He doesn't stay in that place of lament. He doesn't have to. He doesn't stay in that place of crying and weeping out. He directs it to God. Look at verse 5. I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah turns his attention to God. He doesn't stay fixated on the walls being broken down. He doesn't stay fixated on the fact that the gates have been burned. He turns his attention to God. Okay, God, I know you can do something about this. And I want my attention to go to you. I want to cry out to you. And I want to cry out to you on behalf, not just of me and my family, but on behalf of your people. God, you are awesome, he declares. You are the one who preserves the covenant. It's not your people. You're the one who preserves your covenant. You're the one who preserves your loving kindness for those you love and who keep your commandments. And that, by the way, has been the massive problem with the people of God, is that they had abandoned the commandments of God. Israel has sinned against their God over and over and over and over again, and God had continued to be faithful to them even when he had sent them into exile. And they're kicking and screaming and raising their fists in the rebellion and their idolatry. God still said to them, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. My rebellious sons and daughters, I'm going to be with you. They couldn't shake the Lord. God had his purposes with Israel. They would not be stifled by Israel. Nehemiah calls the attention of God to the people of God. In Ezra, we find that the people of God, even in Ezra, even in their coming back, even in God restoring and renewing the city, we find in Ezra that the people of God continue to marry with the Canaanites. They continue to marry with the pagans. Continue to sin against God as God was rebuilding the temple. As God gave them resources from Babylon, money from Babylon, a pagan king, to rebuild the temple. This unbelievable favor that God had placed upon them. And in the midst of that, they were still sinning against God. Still, as God was providing for them, as God was coming through for them, they're still in open violation against the commandments of God. And yet God's purposes didn't stop. So Nehemiah, in the midst of this, knowing all of this, he appeals to the covenant-keeping God. And then he intercedes and he confesses sin. Intercession and confession. Look at verse 6 and 7. Let your ear now be attentive. And God, your eyes open to the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now. Day and night, on behalf of of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which have sinned against you. And I pray, and I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. 
Nehemiah, as he takes his grief and he comes before the Lord, acknowledges God first, acknowledges God's covenant-keeping ability, and then he prays on behalf of the sons of Israel, God, hear my prayer. God, your people need you. We're in a bad place. We have sinned against you. We've sinned. I confess that. I confess that boldly and publicly before you, God, that we have sinned. And it's not just you. It's not just others who have sinned. God, it's been my father's house. It's been me who have sinned against you. It's not just them. It's not just out there. It's right here. We have all been corrupt. We have not kept your good commandments, the statues, or the ordinances that you gave to Moses. Today, we interpret this through these lenses, and we recognize it's if, it's if he's praying, God, the church needs you. We're in a bad place. We have compromised and compromised and compromised and compromised as we tried to get people to like us. And we found ourselves in ruins. God, we have sinned against you. And it's not just them. It's this man who sinned against you. It's me who's compromised. It's my father's house. And God, we confess it. We confess to you. We have been more fearful than men of men than we have of you. We have lost our way. God, as the church, we've not honored you. We've been ashamed of your word. We've not kept your commandments. But Nehemiah knows that God will not forget him. He knows that even though all of that is true, he knows that God will not forget him. Look at verse 8 and 9. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. He appeals to God to remember your word. God, remember. Remember your word, O oh God. Remember what you commanded your servant Moses. Don't forget your word. He appeals to the word of God in his prayer. God, don't forget. Remember what you told your servant Moses. And friend, yeah, friends, God has a really good memory. And he said, if they're unfaithful, they'll be scattered. But remember, God, you said if they return to you and keep your commandments, God, you would gather them. You would gather them back in from all the places of the earth. You would gather them back in and bring them to the place where your presence is. And friends, when we hear things like that, it really should send up gospel flares in our mind. When we hear things like commandments, and keeping them and not keep keeping them and God being faithful to those who keep his commandments should cause us to remember the fact that the people of God didn't do it. They didn't keep the commands of God. Should make us remember that we had not kept the commandments of God. Even as we have the spirit of God dwelling within us, we still struggle to keep the commandments of God. And for the rest of our lives, we're striving for obedience to God. At times, conquering sin, knowing that sin does not have dominion over us. At other times, feeling like, my gosh, it feels like sin has dominion over me right now. 
We hear about God being faithful to those who keep his commandments. This is gospel language. It's language so full of meaning. Even though Ezra and Nehemiah tell us about God bringing his people back to Jerusalem, the books in and of themselves, Ezra and Nehemiah, are anticlimactic. When we see at the end, Nehemiah's a pretty, pretty dude, right? He's pretty, like pretty tough dude, rough around the edges. He's like literally giving people a beat down and pulling their hair out. Like that's where we're going. Like, oh, okay, it just ends with Nehemiah giving people a beat down. They're anticlimactic books. Like you see, they're, they're, they're these high moments, mountaintop, temples rebuilt. Yes! They're still marrying people they shouldn't marry. The city's being rebuilt. Yes! Nehemiah's angry, giving people a beat down. They're anticlimactic in their end. They are not an end in and of themselves. The people of God are still sinful. And the people of God were still lost. Like they, they still couldn't find up from down, left from right. They needed someone to keep the commandments and do them. God's faithfulness is attached to this. Commandment keeping and doing them. The place in which God's presence dwells is on the other side of that commandment keeping. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of mankind. We need a commandment keeper with a big K. Keeper, keeper, someone who will do it. And as we know, we love Jesus around here. Jesus is. Jesus is this commandment keeper who came to be faithful to that covenant. And we see that God wrapped up this whole covenant in himself. He did it. I will be faithful, and I will even keep the other side of the covenant. The commandments that I give to you, I'm sending my son to keep. The people of God, sinful and lost, but this great commandment keeper would come. Jesus came to do it, and God has gathered us around this commandment keeper. God has gathered us around Jesus and has, not, and has chosen, he has chosen to cause his name to dwell within us. Remember your word. I will gather them. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, those of you who have been scattered will we're in the most remote parts of the heavens, and I will gather them there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name dwell. And friends, right here, right here in the midst of Carbondale, Illinois, with snow all around us, people of God gathering in church buildings and houses all over the world, God has caused his presence to dwell with us because of what Christ has done. The great covenant keeper, the one who kept the commands of Moses, oh my, this is really, really good news. And as we think about the ruins of Christianity around us, the social fabric of our country being completely shredded and ripped apart, it looks like. As it looks like the enemy, our enemies are getting their upper hand, we have to remember that God has not abandoned us because Jesus came to keep the commandments for us. He dwells within you, beloved. The Holy Spirit of God is within you, and you can't shake him. This is a story that was told of old. It was promised. It was 
foreseen and foretold in God delivering his people from Egypt. Look at verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. God has always been in the work of redemption. It was impossible for the people of God to escape Egypt on their own power. Impossible. It took ten plagues. It took the shedding of blood. For the people of God to be rescued and redeemed, ransomed out of Egypt. These stories of redemption that we see from the Exodus all the way through the judges of God raising up his judge and saving his people after they had sinned against him. Or God doing the miraculous, doing the impossible by bringing millions of people as the enemies end up at the bottom of the Red Sea. All of that is pointing to the great redemptive work of Christ. And he has caused his name to dwell within covenant keepers who are covenant keepers only by their association with the covenant keeper himself, Jesus Christ. God, these are your people whom you redeemed. Nehemiah calls the attention of God back to his saving work. These are your people. God, you, you laid claim on them with your mighty right hand. God, they're yours. Nehemiah reminded God, Israel is your people, your beloved. And it's a common thing. This is what the people of God through the Old Testament do. God does not forget his people. So we see in the prayers of Moses, David, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and more, them praying prayers like this. God, remember your covenant. Remember your people. Remember what you did for them. And we get to pray those same kind of prayers. God, you've redeemed us. You have purchased us. You have bought us with a price. Holy Spirit, you have dwelt us. God, remember your people. Remember your purposes. May our enemies be crushed before us. God, may your purposes go forward for the good of this land, for the good of your people. May your purposes move forward. God, don't let the enemy win. And friends, we know that the enemy doesn't win. These are prayers that will surely be answered. God, be with your people? What's he going to say? No. His presence is with us. God, advance your purposes. Advance your cause. Save people. No. He's not going to say no to that. These are prayers that will be answered. We get to pray these prayers. Remember us. Advance your cause. Defeat our foes. And may your presence and purposes go forth into this world until the knowledge of the glory of God covers this earth. And then Nehemiah has bold action. He doesn't just pray and say, okay, God, do your thing. He prays, rolls his sleeves up, grabs his work gloves, and he goes to work. And he's willing to go and even address the king. And he prays for courage to do it. Because if I'm going to go, go talk to Artaxerxes, if I'm going to talk to that king of Persia, God, I'm going to need strength and I'm going to need boldness because I'm going to ask some bold things. I'm going to ask some bold things. God, give me opportunity to do it. Look at verse 11. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. That's Artaxerxes. Nehemiah knows after this prayer, I will talk to the king. We're going to find out that he was a cupbearer. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. And cupbearers were there to drink the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He was a secret service agent of the day. 
a cupbearer would drink. If the king had anything in question, he would drink first. I'll drink first. Already, it required some backbone to be a cupbearer to the king because you're taking that cup every day and there's threat of espionage, there's threat of, of, uh, of, of violence against the king every day and so Nehemiah would take that cup and he would drink that as the cupbearer of the king and if he didn't die, the king would say, great, give me that wine. And Nehemiah knew, God, give me courage because I'm going to face this man and I'm going to address this man and I'm going to be willing, you give me opportunity, God, to ask some bold things of him. And I'm going to trust that your purposes that you started with Zerubbabel and Ezra, you're going to continue them. I know your promises that you gave Jeremiah. I know the promises that you gave your people. And I'm going to ask some bold things of this king. And that he does. God, I want to do something about it. Grant me help. I delight to revere your name. So I'm going to talk to this king. God, grant the king compassion for our cause. Friends, we're going to spend some time in prayer. And we're going to sing here in a second, but I want to finish this sermon, sermon doing what Nehemiah did. And I want to just spend some time in prayer. We're going to open up. It's a big prayer meeting here. Okay? We're all just somebody's house right now. We're going to spend some time in prayer asking for the Lord to do a work. There are many things to pray about right now in our world, within the church and within the world. And I don't want to just read what Nehemiah did. I want to do what Nehemiah did. Now, I'm not going to call you to give a beat down to people. There's a time and place for everything. But we're not going to be able to do all that Nehemiah did. There's no physical walls to rebuild. Okay? But there are ruins all around us. There are friends that we know who have been compromised. Guys, seriously, in 2021, there are churches that have not met and don't have the ecclesiology pastors who don't have the wherewithal to say, even though it's a virus, we're going to meet. Who have been more afraid of a virus than they have of God. Churches still closed because the state has told them to. Friends, that's cowardice. That's ruins. And those are things we can pray about. Where, where do you, like Nehemiah, say, need to say, God, I confess it's not just out there, it's, it's in here. It's in here that I've been slow to obey. Is there been any area in your life you've been slow to obey? Or that you've not liked about what God has said? Are there places as you're reading through the Bible? These are ruins. These are ruins. When men and women open their Bible and they're like, ooh, I don't like that. Whatever it is. That's the city gates that have been burned. When the people of God are compromised because they're embarrassed what God has to say. So where do you need to repent? Where have you been slow to obey? Where have I been slow to obey? May we grieve like Nehemiah grieved. And then may we confess like Nehemiah confessed. May we intercede like Nehemiah interceded. And may we be men and women of action like Nehemiah. Let's pray. Lord, we need wisdom and direction. Help us as we go into a time of prayer. And then as we sing, God, as we go through this book, this, God, we want to see your work in our midst. We're already seeing it in this church. You're building up men and women, boys and girls, households that are glorious households. You're saving our sons and daughters. Granddaughters and grandsons. God, you're growing up people who are wise to your word. And God, thank you that this is what you're doing here. It's not isolated. 
we're one of millions of churches that are gathering, that are in love with your word, wanting to honor you, and wanting to go forward in boldness, who are concerned about the ruins of Christianity that we see all around us. God, when we see brothers and sisters compromised, let us not just be angry or frustrated. Let us be grieved to the point of prayer and action. When we see brothers and sisters celebrating evil things in this country, help us be grieved and motivated to prayer and into action. Raise up Nehemiahs among us, God. Raise up people who are willing to do what you've called them to do. Holy Spirit, lead us in this time of prayer. Pray there's anybody here from a child, from the kids in the room, to the oldest of those us in this room. God, lead us in prayer. Help us to pray prayers, calling you to move, calling you to remember your people. Help us, God, be involved in I trust you will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, it's time of prayer. Anybody who wants to pray, you pray. If nobody does, that's okay. But as the Holy Spirit leads, let's just spend some time in prayer. And Andy, kind of do some, like, you know, guitar-y, picking thing in the background. And...